Well, church, welcome. Welcome to all of our campuses. If you are new to Northview, we are one church uh, meeting across 15 locations this morning, and we are thrilled that you would join us. And we say often, welcome to the party. Welcome to uh, the Bible study. That's essentially what this is. We open this pages of scripture every single week to just discuss, hey, what is God's plan and desire uh, for our life? And, and so we're glad that you're here. Recently, I was asked this question. I received a message uh, from an individual. And to be clear, it was, it was actually a really pleasant message uh, and really respectful and even affirming. Uh, but in there, she said, you know, I, I love your passion for God's word. I, I love your reverence for things of the faith. But every time you say, welcome to the party, it just lands weird for me. It feels so irreverent. And I actually get where she's coming from because most people, when they hear party, they hear beer pong and some solo cups, right? And I do think in life, you ultimately have three options whenever you bump into anything. You can either reject it, receive it, or redeem it. And who says that the world gets to corner the market on a good time and celebration? And what you find all throughout, yeah, we can celebrate that. God's not some cosmic killjoy out to rob you of your your joy. In fact, what you find is all throughout the Old Testament, there is this emphasis and instruction to gather and to celebrate. You should uh, do a deep dive into the different feasts and festivals and celebrations all throughout the Old Testament. Essentially, God's telling his people, hey, come together and celebrate. Hey, come together and celebrate. Come together and celebrate. Remind yourself uh, of my goodness and my work and my, my plan and desire for your life. Uh, there even comes a point where Jesus arrives on the scene and in the gospels we find uh, Jesus uh, would dine and accept invitations to go to weddings and dinner parties. And a lot of times this irritated uh, folks around him. And at one point he turns to the crowd around him and he lays out what would arguably be his most infamous parable. And he tells the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin and the lost son. When the shepherd finds the sheep, what does he do? Hey, come to my house and celebrate. And would you just join the party? I found my lost sheep. When he, the lady finds the lost coin, what does she do? Hey, come and celebrate with me. And when the father finds the lost son, what does he do? He kills the fattened calf. And he says, hey, would you come to my house? And would you celebrate with me? And I pray that when you hear me say, welcome to the party, uh, you don't receive it as some shallow endorsement of what the world would do, uh, but you hear an echo of scripture as we are called to gather, to reflect and to acknowledge the goodness of our God, his faithfulness, his provision, his power and his pardon. And every single week we gather, we believe individuals are gonna come to Christ for the first time. And we believe that deserves the utmost celebration and joy. And that is why we say, welcome to the party, amen. So we are thrilled that you are here. And if you're not a Christian, my goodness, I am uh, just honored that you would come and join the conversation and know uh, I'm coming for you uh, just because uh, someone came for me and someone, you know, put themselves out there to share Jesus with me and it just altered my life. And I just look forward to the opportunity to share Jesus with anyone and everyone. And so we're thrilled that you are here. And every single week we gather, we have guests, and it's not to delineate and say one is better than the other, but uh, today we do have a very special guest uh, with us today. When I first gave my life to Christ, age of 19, I transferred uh, from a state school to a, uh, a private school in Minnesota. I wanted to pursue my education, uh, continue playing ball, but I also wanted to be in a space where I could develop this faith. And 
I arrived at a school where I was rough around the edges. Anyone else, when you first gave your life to Christ, you were rough around the edges? And uh, that was my story. Early on, I, I probably uh, should have been dismissed from school uh, or put on some academic probation. I, I just wasn't uh, fully there. And I had a professor uh, who took me under his wing and uh, mentored me and uh, just was really great. Anyone thankful for the people in your life? It's like, man, that person was just really great. And his name uh, was Tracy Paynham, uh, who just so happened to be the younger brother of a man by the name of Tommy Paynham, who started this church 44 years ago. And Tommy Paynham would die of ALS in the 90s, and uh, Pastor Steve Poe uh, would take over the leadership of this church. And uh, Pastor Tommy and Tracy's father, uh, Reverend Tom Paynham, is with us today, and I just... So thrilled. You want to just feel honored when you get to meet someone who's really impacted your life and they don't even know about it. And uh, sir, you raised two sons that have set me up for uh, tremendous blessing and success and hats off to you. I just salute you and I honor you. And uh, most people don't know this, but our prayer chapel actually here on Carmel's property uh, was funded by Reverend Tom Sr. and his church. And so we just thank you and celebrate you. Can we just one more time show some love at all of our campuses? If you are new to Northview, I'm sentimental and I get emotional and you're just gonna have to accept it. Uh, today, we are going to cover some ground. We are going to be in Acts chapter two, verses 37 through 47. We are in a series uh, called I Love My Church, and today we are going to talk about groups. We're focusing on what are the things that when God looks upon his church, he says, oh, I, I love my church. I love seeing that in my church. This series is less about turning you into some uh, brand ambassador for Northview, though I think it is healthy and good to be proud of the church you attend and share that with others. But the goal of this series is to say, hey, when we go to the pages of scripture, what are the things that God says, yeah, that, do that. I, I love seeing that in my church and, and fellowship and biblical community and doing life together uh, is something God celebrates uh, greatly. And all of this as Everything that we do is going to center on the cross. And I think we've got some, some boxes that we can put out here of some things that we can talk about. And we will see uh, where we end up. If you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter two and to give you the ramp and give you some context. Uh, Jesus shows up. We capture his story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels that uh, begin the New Testament. Uh, Jesus shows up and he is uh, born to impoverished teenage parents living in an undeveloped region in a remote time of history and he lives a perfect life. This is a huge detail about our savior. 33 years spent on uh, earth among us and he lived this remarkable life and he brought forward uh, ethics of love and commands of righteousness and he laid before us a standard of living that was unparalleled and unmatched and over time uh, he gained traction and over time he, he gained influence and what we find is still to this day this Jesus that we've anchored our hope to he transcends cultures and he transcends time and he transcends history and he is a big deal. 
But initially, he began very humbly. I, I love that about our Jesus. And for the longest time, while he was going about his earthly ministry, Jesus devoted the majority of his time and attention uh, to 12 individuals who he would call disciples. And he would raise up 12 disciples. And he would teach them all these remarkable things and he would make predictions and promises, things that we still anchor our lives to to this day. And two of those were he would say, I'm going to die and then I'm going to resurrect three days later. And it's, it's remarkable because he pulled it off. I jokingly say often, anyone who can predict their death and the resurrection and pull it off, I'm siding with that guy. I'm betting on him. And Jesus does and comes back to life and has breakfast on the beach with his disciples. I love this. He's so personal. He's so approachable. And he is so dialed in and attentive uh, to his disciples and to those who are in relationship uh, with him. And what you find is Jesus says, now I am going to ascend to the Father, and this is good news, because I am sending the Holy Spirit. We talked about this last week, where essentially the promise of the Holy Spirit means Jesus no longer has to walk beside us because the Spirit of God now resides within us. This is a beautiful promise. And so he tells them to go and to wait uh, for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so Acts chapter two, we find the disciples in the infamous upper room. And what is amazing is the group of 12 uh, has become 120 by the time they reach the upper room. And they're in the upper room and the Holy Spirit shows up and does some really fascinating, wild and just amazing uh, things that empower this group of timid and cowardly individuals to go out into the streets, into this crowded city, and to preach the gospel and to begin the local church. Pentecost is not just when the Holy Spirit shows up. Pentecost is also when the church was born. This is church history. This is part of our story. And it's amazing because Peter goes out there and Peter preaches a sermon. And Peter, who was a coward, now finds all this courage. And that is sometimes the case when you, you give your life fully over to Christ, you find that the Spirit of God envelops in your life and suddenly you begin accomplishing an assignment placed upon you that you always thought was beyond you. It's an amazing thing. And so Peter is given this message and I want you to look at verse 37. And it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Someone say cut to the heart. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, it's a gift, so welcome to the party. This is something we ought to celebrate. The promise is for you and your children, and all who are far off. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. And some of you need to know that this promise, this good grace, this Holy Spirit, this salvation, this redemption of souls, it is for you as well as your children, as well as those who are far off. And I wonder if our heart could bleed uh, for those people as well. He goes on to say, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt 
generation. And there's certain things that you read in scripture that were spoken 2,000 years ago, uh, but you can almost read them as if they were spoken on Tuesday. What you find is Peter is addressing a crowd and he's saying, hey, pay attention. The world is moving in this direction. Here's where culture's moving, but here's what God is offering. Here's where culture's moving. Here's what God is offering. And still to this day, we need to live with that level of discernment. Here's what culture is offering. And uh, here's what culture, where culture's moving, and here's what God is offering. He's saying, hey, save yourselves from this corrupt generation, and every generation is going to deal with its own measure of corruption and brokenness. And it says, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 people were added to their number that day. This is amazing. And it says, verse 42, check this out. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Every one of them was filled with awe. I love that statement. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And all the believers were together, and look at this statement, and they had everything in common. Now hold that thought in tension as you think about the people who you look upon and think, we have so much in common. Who are the people that you share a lot of commonality with? And they had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as in need. Which means that because there was no greedy among them, there was no needy among them. This was a vibrant community and they immediately began to function in a unique way. Verse 46 says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is amazing to me because what you find is they have no context for church. They don't have an idea of what this should look like. The Holy Spirit shows up, Peter goes out there, he preaches a message, and it's their instincts that amazes me. No one had to get up and organize it. No one had to get up and say, hey, here's the program, here's how we function as a church. No, they discovered new life in Christ, and something in them was like, I want to hang out with other people who enjoy this new life in Christ. I wanna hang out with other people who have anchored their life to this Jesus, who share these convictions, who are heading in this direction, who have embraced this mission of God within the world. I wanna do life with them. Not because some program is being laid out in front of me. Not because some leader is trying to organize it and lay out some systematic strategy. No, there's this impulse in my soul that I love this Jesus so much and I'm so amazed by who he is. I want to be in community and I want to be in relationship with other people who share my experience. This is really interesting to me. Their instincts are, are outstanding. And I love this passage because Peter goes out there, preaches his first sermon and 3,000 people give their life to Christ. I just love that. I mean, that'll make a pastor insecure. Day one, this cat launches a revival. And what was his message? You're all sinners, but he's a savior. We're all sinners, 
but he's the savior. I mean, Peter comes out, he doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't try to tickle their ears. He's not cute with it because here's the deal. Jesus may not always be a popular message, but he will forever be a powerful message. And there's something about this truth that every single one of us has to recognize and accept at some point that our souls are utterly deprived without the grace and the, the salvation and the redemption and the finished work of the cross. And I always wrestle with God in my conversations in prayer because I recognize preaching like this is not how you build a crowd. Preaching like this is how you build a Christian. And my wrestling match with God oftentimes is like, God, I don't know if I'm fit to pastor a large church because I don't speak in a way that tickles ears. And I don't really package myself in a way that, you know, really markets well to a vast majority of people. I just think there's a group of people out there, though, that they care deeply about their development. And there's a group of people out there who like to be shot with straight and just, hey, let's, let's just talk about the reality of our souls and what does this life mean and where are we going? And Peter, he lays it out and says, you should know that this Jesus laid it all down for you and I. He was publicly humiliated, hung naked on a cross, whipped, beaten, spit on, mocked, stabbed in the side with a spear. They thrusted a crown of thorns upon his head and he did it all for you and I. And it cut him to the heart. It got beneath the surface. It got beneath the facade. It got beneath the whole, you know, playing church and playing religion. It got beneath all of that. And it pierced them to their core to where they thought, if he's done all that for me, I can't help but in turn wanna do so much for him. And they, they dive into community. I love it because they, they say, hey, what, what should we do? He says, repent and be baptized. And some of you, maybe you're gathered here today and you're like, well, well what should I do? Repent. And repentance is not a one-time thing. It's a lifestyle. See, that's what we find in the book of Acts that is so different from what we are witnessing in the American church. We have reduced this life of faith down to lip service. When what you find in the early church is life service, these individuals understood this is a lifestyle. I have given my life to him and I live daily in this posture of repentance. Repentance is ultimately uh, the changing of minds. It's just saying, I've, I've thought about it this way my whole life or for so long, uh, but in this moment, God, you are illuminating a truth and I'm, I'm acknowledging that you're right and I've been wrong and you've, you've changed my mind and you've changed my heart and I trust that you're going to change my life. That's repentance. It's a posture of surrender and every single one of us needs to live a life of repentance. Every single one of us. And, and I know this isn't super popular to talk about. I, I sometimes get beat up because individuals hate the sin conversation. Um, they hate being called a sinner. Well, just know you're hearing it from a sinner. Like there's nobody perfect here. And it's amazing to me because people love the grace conversation, but they hate the sin conversation. And I'm like, well, that's, 
That's a contradiction. Uh, because where there is no sin, there's no need for grace. And this whole thing ushers us into a new beginning and a new life in Christ when we recognize, oh, I need a savior. And you, this isn't to be bashful. This isn't to hurt feelings, but it is to say, you need a savior. And we can kind of go through the motions and build you know, walls of pride and wear masks and really present ourselves well, but every single one of us knows that there's a nagging truth deep within our souls that we know that we know, even at our best, we can't cut it. And so rather than walking around with an imposter complex, you might as well just receive the gift of eternal life that is brought forth by Jesus Christ and Christ alone and live in the freedom found in the finished work of the cross, amen? This is really remarkable stuff. And what's so amazing is they have this message pierce them to the heart. And it says immediately they began to gather in their homes. And there's really three things that they would do. What you would find in the early church is there was three things. I think this marker over here is better. Three things that they focused on doing. One was learning. Two was loving. And three was liturgy. This is what they did. They'd gather together. They would open up the pages of, you know, scripture that they had available to them at the time. And they would go through the apostles' teachings. And they would apply it to their life. And they would focus on loving each other well. And extending grace. And being patient with one another. And edifying and encouraging. That's what they would focus on. And liturgy is this public worship. They would break bread and it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. This is uh, the last supper, the, the ordinance in the church that we would know as communion. They would come together to illustrate and to remind themselves of the, the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. And they would pray together and they would give praise to God. This is what the church did. And I think a lot of times what we have in church spaces is you know, it's important to have commitment. It's important to have convictions. But it's also critical to have connections. And I think we are overlooking this third dynamic. What happens is, is we are living in a, a side of history where we are becoming more and more isolated. Social media and all that has isolated our culture. Where we used to interact more in community, now we drift into isolation. And I'm convinced that your church experience is radically influenced by your engagement. In fact, I would say your engagement determines whether or not your church experience is awesome or awful. It's to say, hey, it's when I get into community with other people because folks, here's the deal. Living out the Christian faith without Christian friends is really difficult. It is hard to live out the Christian faith without leaning on Christian friends. And why is that? One, because it's difficult. 
because you're gonna need somebody and somebody's gonna need you and we're better together. And there's strength in community. Two, it's hard to live out the Christian faith without Christian friends because it's confusing. So you're gonna try to live a life for Christ and you're gonna anchor your, your life to him and you're gonna open up the pages of scripture and you're gonna continue to bump into instructions and commands and scriptures you know, prompting to be in relationship to be in community, and you're gonna be confused. How do I live a life for Christ apart from community? And I don't really think you can. You see, what I love about the cross and what you will even kind of look at in the great commandment is scripture says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself that if we're gonna live a Christ-centered life, we have to understand that there's a part of this deal that is vertical in our orientation, and then there's a part of it that is horizontal. How well do you connect, and how well do you do life with others in your community of faith? And we all need relationship. And sometimes uh, my struggle, and I'm always like, I don't know how to say this well that's more persuasive, um, but it's sometimes a challenge for me to help individuals understand how much they need others. I think we fall into this delusion that we all tend to think we're more self-sufficient than we actually are, and we need community. And I think when it comes to your relationships, you need three kinds of relationships. I think every single one of us needs additions, Right, people who are you know, mentoring us, you know, speaking into our life, people who you have taken the initiative and you've given them access and authority to speak into your life. We all need additions. I think we all need associates. Right? Who are the people that you're linking arms with? The people who are in a similar season of life that you are in and they're traveling with you. We all need associates. And lastly, we all need assignments. I mean, this even applies to leadership, your career, but... This really applies to the community of faith. And this is basic economics. Deposits and withdrawal. If you don't have people pouring into you, you're gonna have a hard time pouring into somebody else. And if you're not balanced out relationally, you will run into spiritual bankruptcy. Is this landing with anybody? Is this making sense? And so what scripture is saying is, it's like, hey, we, we have to learn to value the critical necessity of biblical community. It's not just about having strong convictions. You have to have strong connections. Because that's why, I mean, for years, Northview has said, long before I ever showed up, circles are better than rows. What that implies is, hey, we wanna get people in community together. Because here's the problem with a row. Nobody knows in a row. When you sit side by side at all of our campuses, nobody knows what everyone's going through. But when you sit in a living room in a circle on some couches, suddenly you start to realize, hey, their marriage is going through a hard time and their child just made a poor decision and he's making a big decision with his company and they're in transition in their career and they just received a bad medical report and they're still struggling to have children and suddenly what nobody knows in a row becomes very apparent in a circle, and that's where suddenly you get the opportunity to love well. 
Because here's the thing every single one of us needs. We all need some Jesus with some skin on. Right? Like, man, I, I understand that there's so much to this Jesus that I'm fixing on this eternal hope and glory. But a lot of times I need the, the flesh in front of me, a person who has the spirit of God within them who is living as a reflection of Christ in my life. We all need some Jesus with some skin on. So it's, it's difficult, it's confusing, and lastly, the Christian faith without Christian friends, it's boring. I'm just telling you, it's super boring to go through this life with Christ and not link arms with other people anchored to the same vision, same mission, same values, same convictions. It comes to life when we do life with one another. And what's amazing to me is, is Peter, he, he lays out this message and without any instructions, they decide, hey, we, we need to meet together. That to me is, is beautiful. And I think a lot of times where we get tripped up when we read this passage and a lot of times when I'm pastoring individuals about, hey, you should get more connected. I will hear the sentiment or sometimes the verbatim statement, well, I just don't have anything in common with those people. You ever heard that? You know, sometimes we, we really think about, do I have chemistry with this person? And it says that day one, the church came together, they gave their life to Christ, they were baptized, and they just started meeting together. And not just once a week, it says they met every day, which flies in the face of the American church that they say the average Christian in America now attends church once or twice a month. I mean, we are living in real time where we are seeing a pretty significant shift in our culture. I mean, what was it like for you growing up? I grew up in a church where we went to church on Sunday mornings, then we went to Sunday school, then we served at the next service, then we came back for a prayer service, then we had Wednesday night family programming, and then they just threw other things on the calendar, a potluck, and we're doing this outreach. We were always in church. Wave at me if you were always in church growing up. Yeah, that was our culture. And now what we've done is we've given ourselves over to the demands of consumer-minded culture. And so I said, well, it's too much of a time demand. So maybe we should get rid of Christian education. Maybe we should get rid of those prayer services. And maybe we should get rid of those weekly programming. And maybe we should just go down to a service and what happens is then we find ourselves on this track where we're just reducing, 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 reducing. And, and here's the deal. Um, folks, being a Christian, it's not doing God a favor. Being a Christian is doing yourself a favor. Like God doesn't need you to be in community. You need to be in community. <laughs> Right, like it's just saying like, you need this. We all need this. And something in our thinking starts to think we are exempt from these type of things. And he's saying, no, 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 no. This is so critical. And they came together in this vibrant, life-giving community where they were just in awe and wonder as to the goodness of God. And that everything in common statement will trip a lot of people up. Well, they had everything in common. I I don't think I have many things in common with these people. And the question is, is when Peter goes out there 
and he preaches and 3,000 people give their life to Christ, the question is, who gave their life to Christ? Who were these people? And scripture actually tells us. If you go to Acts chapter two, looking in verse nine, it says the city was filled with people from all over the known world. This is where the Holy Spirit shows up and does some fascinating things. And it gives us a list of all the people in the city at the time. And look at this, verse nine. There were the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near uh, Cyrene. There was visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts uh, to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. That's a pretty diverse group of people. I mean, these people show up from these different countries and neighboring nations and different cultures. They give their life to Christ and they had everything in common, which is amazing. Because when you look at the first church that was made up of these people, thousands of them, what you find is they, one, they did not have a shared culture. Right? They're, they're all coming from different cultures. In addition to that, they didn't have a shared language. Fascinating, right? They also did not have a shared disposition. Right? You know how Irish and German people seem angry? Come on, that's in my bloodline. She's shaking her head at me. Shots fired, I get it. They didn't have a shared disposition. In addition to that, they didn't have a shared politics. Think about this. They didn't have, I mean, shared class, shared race, shared politics, shared culture, shared language. Think about how different this group of people were. And what you find is the word of God goes forward. The gospel is presented and it cuts to the heart. And, and here's where our culture wants us to continue just dividing over this garbage. Let's just divide over that. Let's just divide over that. Let's divide over that. And what you find is the Holy Spirit shows up. Peter goes out there and preaches Christ crucified, resurrected from the grave, and it pierces to the heart and it cuts beneath the garbage. It just cuts beneath it. And suddenly they're like, oh, there's something deeper than race. There's something deeper than class. There's something deeper than your disposition. There's something deeper than your education. And I resonate with it. I too am a fractured soul in need of this grace. And it's amazing because somehow, this is daunting, it's, it's almost daunting in this current climate to preach about. Somehow the early church with that type of extreme diversity, people from different backgrounds and walks of life and experiences and traditions, somehow, oh my goodness, they came together under the banner of this Jesus is amazing. And the question is, does God still do that type of thing? Or are Christians still willing to participate in that type of thing? The Holy Spirit shows up and I'm telling you, the church is beautiful. And I'm telling you, if this church existed today, 
Do you understand how much of a beacon of hope and bright light that would be in our world? While everyone's fighting and dividing and you know, focusing on our differences, you would see, man, but look at them. Look how they do community. Look how they love each other. Look how they're patient with one another. Look how they embrace their commonality as they're working through their differences. Look at their ability to extend grace. That is amazing. And I don't know if I wanna be one of them, but I sure wouldn't mind experiencing that. I don't know if I wanna be one of them, but I sure wouldn't mind working for one of them. I don't know if I wanna be one of them, but I sure wouldn't mind hiring one of them or having my daughter marry one of them because those people are different in the best of ways. And my prayer is, Lord, would you maybe do again what you've been doing all along? And that is piercing your people to the heart, getting beneath the surface of all the the stuff that we get distracted by. And God, would you do something in your community, your church, because we all need each other. We're better together. And there's something beautiful about broken people coming together under the banner of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And that is really where our passion as a church for groups resonates. Like, yeah, absolutely. Like, we, we want you to be a part of a group. Uh, not, not because uh, church staff is organizing it. No, 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 no. That, that's so shallow. If that's the only reason why you're doing it, don't do it. I, I, I think you should be a part of a group because you've been pierced to the heart by the gospel. You fully surrendered your life to Christ. And you want to enjoy this new life that you have with him with others who are on the same journey. Because sociologists, take it outside the faith, you'll find that they say every single one of us is the sum average of our five closest friends. I mean, do an audit on your friend group, right? (laughs) We are all the sum average of our five closest friends. Another way of saying it is show me your friends and I'll show you your future. It's a great principle to teach your kids. And so it's recognizing, hey, I, I need to be in this community. And what I love about Jesus is, folks, he's not only the source, right? He's the source of truth. He's the source of our identity. He's the source of this new life, right? He is the source. The thing that your soul craves and needs the most, he's the source. And in addition to that, he's the force. I mean, where can we experience such life-altering love that is deep and wide, high and long? What we talked about last week, it is overwhelming. And it is this love that abounds and it is this love that transforms and it is this love that empowers and alters our life. And this force empowers us to live beyond ourselves. And it is the driving force in our life. And lastly, Jesus is the source, the force, and he is the course. I love that we don't just serve a a savior who showed up and gave a bunch of lessons and then dipped out. I love that he showed up and he made declarations 
And then he followed it up with a demonstration. And he laid out before us, this is what this life looks like. This is what this kind of life looks like. This is what this kind of life looks like. That's why scripture would say he is the author and the finisher of our faith. He laid it out before us. And it's when I walk in his footsteps, I cannot help but just lean out and lean in to other people and to be in relationships. And it says they were with each other daily. The old theologians, they would call this the withness of the early church, which I don't know if that's a real word, but those old theologians, they could just make stuff up, it seems like. It's a great statement. Their withness. There was something about the early church that they loved being with one another. And it makes me think of John chapter 13. Now, and with this, it's amazing. These words come on the back end of Jesus being betrayed, Jesus being denied by Peter, Jesus heading to the cross. In verse 34, folks, lean in on this. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, huge statement, how has he loved us? When you define your love by his love, your love goes to a different level. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Verse 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. I'm gonna read it again. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And what he's saying is, our witness is the key to our witness. I'm just telling you, we are a bright light of hope to the world around us when we don't drift into isolation like everybody else. And when we do community with each other and we show that, hey, we're all broken, but we've experienced a love that allows us and empowers us to extend grace even to the most broken. And we come together embracing our commonalities as we work through our differences. That type of church in our current culture would shine and it would thrive. And it's why we want you to be a part of a group.